there's, a, there's like a word picture I have in my brain for every time we get together, what I'm trying to do up here this morning. So there's kind of three areas I like, I dip into every week that we're trying to do. And it's kind of, it, this is a, this is what it's like in my brain. There's like a biblical theology. And by that, I don't just mean that our theology is biblical. Biblical theology is a discipline that I've given my life to, which just says we believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so we're trying to figure out all the, you know, Paul's echoing Moses here. We're trying to, oh, wow, the Bible is this beautiful piece of artistic literature. We're trying to lay hold of I'm trying to do that from the pulpit every week. Another thing I want to do is soul care, right? Uh, I'm not just trying to give you information about the Bible so you go, huh, neat, that's pretty cool. This isn't like your book club, all right, at the Daniel Boone Regional Library, which is great. I'm glad you're in that. This isn't like that. We really are trying to say, like, be still, my soul, and know that you are God. We believe that there is life and healing in his presence, and we want to experience that on Sunday. So we're not just trying to do that on our own, just soul care on its own. We want to do that with a foot in biblical theology, soul care. And the other one is cultural engagement. Our culture has many sacred texts, sacred texts that shape how you and I live and breathe and move. We're unaware of those because many of them aren't texts like we think of it. They're films. They're the news. There's all these things that culture, sermons that you hear throughout the week that shape our values. And we want to engage those ideas. We want to put them out and say, hey, how does God feel about this? What, what, is there truth and merit to this? Those are the kind of the three, three circles I try to sit in every week. And they all collided this past week. They all collided in a really violent and dramatic way. The sports world got incredibly spiritual this past week. Incredibly spiritual. In case you didn't know, uh, in case you were taking a fast from the internet, on Monday Night Football's game, the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills, the Buffalo Bills' safety, DeMar Hamlin, got tackled at just the right time with the amount, just the right pressure in just the right spot, that when he stood up from being tackled, he staggered and collapsed and went into cardiac arrest. Some people say that he was flatlined for at least nine minutes. NFL officials described what people saw as traumatic. So the league which has a vested interest in keeping our eyes glued to the TV, said what we witnessed was on the spectrum of trauma. Wow. And then the sports world found itself being incredibly spiritual. Things like this happened. That was on ESPN. I don't know, I don't know, I didn't hear any voices going, whoa, wow, wait, you can't do that. Actually, it went the other direction. Last night, if you saw, you probably weren't watching it because you had another game on, but uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars played the Tennessee Titans, and as the game started, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman drew our attention to the 50-yard line. Do you know what was happening on the 50-yard line? All the players were on their knees praying. Now... How do you feel about that? There's a few different responses. When we think about prayer, 
It's very difficult for me to talk about prayer. I don't really have a great language around it. It's hard for me to talk about it. Part of the reason it's hard for me to talk about it is because historically, in my own walk with Jesus, I have experienced a lot of negative feelings around prayer. Right? I hear people describe their prayer lives in experiences that I'm like, uh, hmm? am I missing something? Does that happen to everybody? Everybody has that experience? I haven't had that experience. Everybody has that? Okay. Maybe there's something wrong with me. I feel a lot of shame and guilt around prayer. Words like ought to, should kind of come into my mind. Oh, I should pray more. I ought to pray more. And so I can feel stuck thinking and talking about prayer. And then tragedy strikes and we pray a lot. And there can be this voice in our head this older brother voice from the prodigal son that says, yeah, I know why you're praying. You're just in a pinch. When everything works out, you're going to keep praying? How do we feel about ESPN and the NFL becoming wildly spiritual seemingly overnight? There's really good news for prayer and for us. And it comes from the strangest place, the book of Deuteronomy, where Bible reading plans go to die. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Deuteronomy. And if you can see, if you can see from Deuteronomy something that energizes and really does give life to this thing we call prayer, I'd be willing to bet if you can see it there, you can see it anywhere. And so this morning, we're going to take, a, we're going to take a, a guided tour through the book of Deuteronomy and see what is the posture, what's the posture that cultivates prayer? What's the posture that energizes prayer? And again, we're not looking at this through the lens of willpower. Oh, I got to pray more. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to white knuckle it. I'm going to really try. I know I've prayed a lot for the past two weeks. I really hope it gets to three weeks. And if it gets to three weeks, maybe I can get to four. For the next 40 minutes, are you willing to just lay that energy and effort aside for just a minute? And just say, is there a posture that the book of Deuteronomy might be inviting me into where then all of a sudden prayer just becomes this really beautiful, life-giving thing I might already be doing more than I'm aware I'm doing it. See, that's why it's also hard for me to talk about prayer. I think we pray more than we give ourselves credit for. And so, book of Deuteronomy lays out these four promises, four promises about who God is. That when we allow ourselves to trust, it changes us and creates a posture that totally transforms our relationship to prayer. There's four promises. God says, here's four things you can bank on. There's four things that if we look at these, it's going to change who we are. And it's going to help us move into this greater awareness that prayer is not a burden that the really spiritual have mastered. Prayer is for all of us. Prayer isn't this thing that, like, okay, like, hey, the super spiritual, they pray, everybody else, you kind of just live your life. 
One of the things I really, I don't know if we've done a great job communicating this, but this church has been built and is being built by prayer. There's been a lot of effort. I have a lot more gray hair than I did five years ago when I first got here. There's been a lot of sleepless nights, but there's been a lot more prayer. And that's not saying we've done a lot of white-knuckling talking to God. We've done a lot of meeting with God. And that's the invitation. You don't have to say, okay, as we, in this series, we're kind of examining our commitments. Last week we talked about we want to be people who are committed to orienting our life around Scripture. This week we want to, we want to think about a commitment to being people who pray. That's not a commitment to white knuckle and effort and energy. But it's a commitment to a growing awareness of being in God's presence. Right? When in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this thing. Pray without ceasing. He says it to the church in Thessalonica. I don't think he's inviting us to be people at the water coolers who are just like, you're like, hey, Rich, you know, did you see that game last night? Hmm? Hmm? Oh, I didn't hear you. Sorry, I was too busy praying for a missionary, asking that they would have money to buy a bus. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. What if prayer is... is bringing those lists to God? But what if prayer is also opening our souls to God? And what I think you're going to find is that you're more open than you're even aware of. And so we're going to look at these four promises that are going to really lean into a posture that I think if we own this posture, if we're committed to the posture, not the practice, the posture. So I'm not inviting you, hey, make a commitment to try to pray more. I'm not inviting you to do that. I'm inviting you rather to a commitment to say, hey, here's a posture that the Bible's inviting me to be in. That the God of Scripture is saying, hey, here's a way of being. And if we can, if we can say, I want to chase that posture. I want to make that my own. I think we're going to see our relationship to prayer change and change dramatically. So if you have a Bible, we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we are going to be in verse 25. So Deuteronomy 4.25. Let me, just by way of context, set up a little bit of what's happening in Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words, deutero, meaning second, and namos, meaning law. This is the second giving of the law. Why are we giving the law a second time? Because the first folks that heard it are not allowed to enter into the promised land. They got out of Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians. They go to Mount Sinai. They see God. Amazing. Then they're like, ah, is God really going to help us? Let's build a cow. They had a golden calf. Charlton Heston comes off the mountains. Ah, freaks out. You guys can't go into the land. You got to wait till your kids. That generation dies out. Now the kids are on the plains of Moab by the Jordan River, about to cross that river and head into the promised land. But before they do that, Moses just says, look. We need to talk about what we're doing before we head into the promised land. Deuteronomy 4 opens up, verses 1 through 6, says, if you orient your life around God's word, if you hear, and if you do these commands, what you're going to see is the nations in these lands will say, who is like this people that has a God who is so near to them every time they call on him? So this law was given to a specific people in a specific time that when they would go into the land, the people would see the nearness of God. 
We're going to look at a section of scripture, though, where Moses is like, I don't think you're going to be able to do this. I don't think this is going to go well. That's what we're going to look at. It's going to answer our questions about the NFL and prayer. And it's going to answer our own questions about prayer. So if you would, please read with me Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 25. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, your God, and arousing his anger, I call heavens and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear, it's important, hear, or eat or smell. But, 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 if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress, and all these things have happened to you. Then, in latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we look at your word, help us to see these four promises and the postures that they create. God, I pray that this posture would be something that we commit ourselves to, a posture of listening. God, help us to be people who hear, who listen, and who love. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So what does God think about the NFL praying? Is he like, oh, yeah, I knew that something like this would happen. It's a dangerous sport, and, you know, you're going to need my help. Fine, here we go. If we really are being shaped by Scripture, that response is totally foreign to the God of Scripture. Look at what he says. Look at, look at how Moses describes what happens. He says this in verse 29. It says this, uh, if, you, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. Look then at verse 30. When you are in distress, here's what the text says. When we find ourselves in distress, and we've gotten there through our own making, these Israelites did this to themselves. If you read carefully that first passage, it sounds very negative, right? Like you're going to go in land, but you're going to worship all these gods, and you're going to get destroyed. Nowhere in this text does God say, when you worship these gods, I'll destroy you. He's saying, you're setting yourself up on a path of destruction through not trusting me. You're going in here, and it's scary, and you're like, I got to do this on my own. I got to trust myself. If you do that, that leads to your own destruction. Why? Uh, verse 28. Then you'll worship man-made gods of wood and stone. And this is really important. They cannot see or hear. You're going to have needs. You're going to run into trouble. And you're going to call out to your gods. But tough luck, they can't hear you. And that becomes a central verb in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear. Listen. One of the prayers that the Israelites would say every day, and still to this day, say every day, is called the Shema. 
And that is the Hebrew word for listen. The posture that God is inviting us into is a listening posture. Listen. It's a crucial... I mean, think about any relationship. Any relationship you have. That relationship is life-giving to the degree that the person you're in the relationship with listens. All right, we all, we all have friends that we like that say interesting things, and they're a ton of fun to be around. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe Ricky just said that. Whoa, Shelly just said that. They're crazy. That's fun. But to really know and love and cultivate a relationship with Ricky and Shelly, Ricky and Shelly need to listen. They need to hear. That's just love 101. And God is saying, if you go into this land and you, and you seek help elsewhere, they just can't hear you. The strong implication then is that God hears us. God, is, God loves it when we cry out to him, however we got there. There's an amazing thing, like please, that, 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 that's an amazing invitation wrapped up in that. Wherever you are in the journey, you can jump in at any time. The invitation, oh, I got to be really spiritual. I mean, prayer is for like the old godly ladies who are retired, who have nothing to do. They're praying for us. We're living life. That's not, that's not the invitation here. Even if you find yourself in a, in a mess of your own making, God loves to hear from you in prayer. Promise number one that shapes our posture. God is easy to find. God is is easy to find. Wherever you are, he's easy to find. Look with me at verse 29. But if from there, where's there? Trouble. These folks are in trouble. If from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. In grammar, that's called an if-then construction. If this happens, then that. If I front flip off this stage, then I'll need one of you to drive me to urgent care. If, then. The then doesn't happen unless the if happens. If we seek God, we find him. He is easy to find. Now, many of us have a far different lived-in experience. How many times have you prayed about something and asked? And it's a good thing, right? You're not asking for a new beamer because your current beamer has a scratch on the door. You're, you're, not being, you're not being wasteful. You're like, God, I really, want, I really want you to heal my mom of cancer. And you ask, and you, it feels like just there's a wall between you and heaven. That can feel like that. And one of the great, it's really good to read Christians who've gone on before. C.S. Lewis describes when he lost a loved one, he described prayer in a season where he was, uh, he, it felt like he was wandering through a cold blizzard and he was, his hands were freezing and his face was cold and he saw a house with a light on and it was warm and he knew it and he could hear laughing on the inside and he goes and he knocks and doof, the blinds close. And he knocks louder, and then the bolt pff, bolts shut. How many of you, that's what prayer feels like? 
It just feels like, God, I'm asking for good things. I'm in trouble and I need your help. Where are you? And it feels very alone. In moments like that, we don't minimize the feeling. We own it. God, I feel alone. And there is a whole host of Christians who've gone on before us. Psalm 70, where the, the people praying bring those frustrations right to God. How long are you going to ignore me? How long are you going to turn your face? Are you honest in prayer? Are you honest with your frustrations? Or are you like, ah, this should be easy. Other people talk about prayer and they're experiencing all these successes. I try to pray, nothing happens. Must be me. Or are you just like, God, this doesn't feel like it's working. We can bring that to him because of the second promise. God is gentle with our weakness. The reason that God delights in prayer Regardless of how we got there, the reason he delights in that is Deuteronomy 4.31, right? He will hear us if we seek him. Why? Because the Lord your God is a merciful God. God is gentle with our weakness. The Lord your God is a merciful God. The Hebrew word for merciful is rahum. Mothers are described as rahum, toward infant babies. When a baby cries out in need, that's all that baby can do. And if any of you have ever practiced this thing called child rearing, you know. It's like, I, I think I've done everything, but the baby's still crying out. That's all the baby can do is cry out for need. That's maturity for a baby. You have a mature baby being mature screaming at you. A Rahum mother doesn't go, oh my gosh, I've done this again. I'm just putting the baby over here. I got to walk away. This is terrible. I hate, I, ah, kids are the worst. A Rahum mother, oh, what do you need? What can we do here? And they swaddle and they care and they hold gentle. God is Rahum with us and our weakness. The good news, when Israel can call to God in their distress, when we can call to God in our distress, we're being met with gentleness. So many of us, I'm deeply convinced, are harder on ourselves than God is on us. So many of us think God is honored when I come to him like, God, oof, let me give you my stats. I know I've been doing this. I know I've been doing that. I know I should try harder. So here's, here's what I'll do. And we start bargaining. That, that's, not, that's not trusting Deuteronomy 4.31. The Lord your God is a merciful God. He likes it when we call out to him, even when we're in our own messes. He's gentle with our weakness. See, part of what happens, I think, to us is we read this verse, verse 29, where it says, if you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. And then we're like, wow, but keep reading, Craig. It says, if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. So you know what the problem is? The problem is me. I got to try harder. I got to seek him with all my heart and with all my soul. What does that mean? Oh, just like, you just have, I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to not watch that Netflix show. I'm going to, you know, serve at church. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going I'm to try. I'm going to seek God with all my heart. That is not what it means to seek God with all our heart. Okay? The prayer that we've already mentioned earlier 
the Shema, it comes from the very first word in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, 4. This is the prayer that Israelites were to pray every day and still do to this day, pray every day. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That verb describes the posture we're talking about. Hear, Israel. Remember in Deuteronomy 4, God listens to us. Now in Deuteronomy 6, we are supposed to listen to God. That describes a relationship, all right? How many marriages work without listening? Not very well, all right? Like, I can't imagine you great success if you're like, hey, I've got this marriage thing all figured out. Just need to talk more. Just need to tell them what I'm thinking, when I'm thinking it, and have a total disregard for their words. I can't imagine you're going to do well, and you may be back in my office very soon. Listening, that's supposed to describe the relationship that God, we have with it. God listens to us, and he doesn't care where we're coming from when, we, when he hears us. He's gracious. He's gentle with us in our weakness. And we're to listen back to him. That's that posture of listening. But let's keep going a little bit. This is very famous. Jesus made this verse very famous. Deuteronomy 6, 5. So we hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 4. That if we seek God with all our heart and with all our soul. That, that, gets, that gets quoted again and again, almost 10 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Seeking God with all our heart and with all our soul. What's it saying? Is it saying willpower and white knuckling and trying really hard? No. What it's saying is honestly. The commitment, the, the, the idea of listening to God is saying, like, let's listen. Let's show up as us and with all of us. Right? So it's not saying, okay, God... I'm going to trust these idols over here. And if you could help, that'd be great. No, that's the Shema. Our God's one. There's one God who can help us. And we show up with, okay, we're trusting you. So it's not about trying harder. It's not about doing more for this God. It's about saying, okay, I'm looking to you and you alone for help. I've trusted my own way, kind of broken down. So I'm trusting you. Showing up honestly, showing up as ourselves. That's what it means to, to, if we seek God with all our heart and with all our soul. Promise number three is that God won't give up on us. You know what's fascinating about what we've been looking at? Look with me at verse uh, 31. Here's what it says. The Lord, your God, is merciful. He will not abandon. So he's not going to give up on you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to be like, oh, still again. He's not going to destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by an oath. Covenants are really important, but also really foreign to us. So we have lots of relationships in our society that people are like, oh, this feels like a covenant because we drew up things and we signed papers. And that's like a covenant. That's not an ancient Near Eastern covenant. So let me just, by way of example, I, I, I don't have Netflix, and I, there's other things I don't have because I pay somebody to mow my lawn. I just, it, it, I hate mowing lawns. I know that's like a thing that people think is so therapeutic. I just have never understood that. I hate mowing lawns. So I'm happily, I, I don't have Netflix. I, there's other things I don't have, so I can pay this guy to mow my lawn. It's fantastic. I really like this guy. I don't love this guy, though. Right, can you imagine if he cut my grass and I was like, oh, Nate, I love you. 
I think that would probably end the relationship. He's like, whoa. I was just cutting her grass, man. I wasn't trying to send like mixed signals. This is whoa. And he's out of here, all right? That would be awkward to have a kind of love relationship there because our relationship is about two things. I give him something he wants, money, and he gives me something I want, cut grass, okay? So that's what our relationship is about. Our relationship is about money and grass, nothing else. If you make it about other things, it changes it. Covenants, especially covenants in the Bible, are not about those things. Covenants are about the relationship and the relationship alone, God is saying, I have entered into a relationship with you, a covenant relationship with you. I'll be your God, you will be my people, and we're going to hear each other. We're going to love each other and listen to each other. And God doesn't give up on us. You know what's fascinating about covenants from the ancient Near East? If you search antiquity, there's lots of covenants for almost everything in the ancient Near East. Marriages, all these different types of covenants. We have not found one. We have not found one with a failure clause in it. There has not been a single covenant that archaeologists have found that says, oh, and by the way, if the relationship breaks down, here's what someone is willing to do to fix it. What we just read in Deuteronomy 4 is a failure clause in a covenant. If you don't do this, you can come back. All you have to do is call out to me. That's radical. No other God had such a plan. If you gave up on Baal, oh, you better grovel. If you gave up on Dagon, it was bad news bears. If you give up on Yahweh, he's just, come back. I'm faithful. It, and all you have to do is just come to me. All you have to do, and he said, I won't abandon you. Here's what he says. I will not abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. That's really hard for us to believe because we see God through the filters of the relationships we have, and people do abandon us. People do abandon us, especially when we don't do what they like. And God is saying this, look, I am on this end of the bargain. I'm always pursuing. I'm always available. I won't give up on you. When we hear God saying that, and really hear, I mean, the word Shema, which that prayer comes from, what we hear, it doesn't just mean to hear like, oh, I hear you saying that. It's just like, think about an old married couple. Old married couples, they hear each other differently. They pick up on body language. They just, they just, they just are attuned to each other. That's what the idea of the Hebrew here has, that posture. We just hear God is God's posture toward us. What's his posture? He's for us. He's gentle with our weakness. And he's like, I'm not going to abandon you. You may feel like this is the thousandth time that you're asking forgiveness for this thing. Or you may feel like this is the thousandth time you're asking me for this. I'm committed to the relationship. I'm not giving up. I will not abandon you. And I will not destroy you. I'm not going to forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed by an oath. In the ancient Near East, they did not have security cameras. They did not have cell phones. Heck, they didn't even have pen and paper. So the most powerful way to say you can take this to the bank is with an oath. And God has made an oath saying, I will not give up. Why? It's because God has glued himself to us. He has glued himself to us. Imagine 
Does, do they still let kids in school use rubber cement, or does it get too many kids high? When I was a kid, we had like rubber cement. And if you were to rubber cement two pieces of paper together, that was it. Like that, th- those are, that's a permanent structure. All right. If you try to rip off one of those pieces of paper, it changes the piece of paper. You're, there's no going back. God is saying he has glued himself to us. That's what I think the Shema means. If you look with me again, the Shema, listen to it. It, it. As soon as I got to seminary, I did a lot of Old Testament studies in seminary. As soon as I got there, you start to realize there's a lot of controversy around this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? Some people say, oh, because Israel was in like a polytheistic culture. The Lord is one means, hey, there's lots of gods. Just trust the one true God. The Lord, he's like the one true God. Well, I do think there are echoes of that there. I think more so what it's saying is that God glues himself to his people. Let me show you where I'm getting that. You just have to hang in with me for a second. Anybody in here ever been to a Christian wedding? Two or three of you. Great. Okay, so at Christian weddings, uh, here's a thing, like a verse they always say. Like, I mean, you could, I would bet money they will say this at the Christian wedding. Maybe a Genesis, but this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Now, the King James, I love the King James in this, but it just, we don't talk about this anymore. Does anyone know it's a man shall leave his father and mother and then what? Cleave. Oh, thank you. Nobody in first service. They were like, hmm? Amazing. There's, we're a King James crowd. It's great. All right? So leave and cleave. It's great because it rhymes. It's very cool. A thing happened, though, in English, because the King James is crazy old. A thing happened in English where cleave, where it used to mean like join together, hold on to each other, unite. Cleave now does not mean that. Cleave means the opposite. Like you have a meat cleaver, right? Poof! Not join together. All right, but there's this beautiful thing. What's happening, what's God's intention in the garden? To become one. All right, so they leave and cleave, and people cleaving are one, okay? That word cleave gets picked up again and again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, 20. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast, same word, cleave to him and take your oaths in his name. Deuteronomy eleven twenty two. If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to hold fast to him, cleave. So this idea of union that when two people get married, they, this mysterious thing happens. They become one. God is trying to picture his relationship with us, saying, hey, when I'm your God and you're my people, we become one. This wild union. And if you're like, I don't know, Paul picks up on that in Ephesians 5. He doesn't just pull that out of thin air. He says the church is the bride of Christ. This idea that God joins himself, marries us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are invited into this unity where God joins us together. He has glued himself to us. He's stuck on us. 
I listened to this fascinating New Yorker radio hour podcast. I hate how that sentence sounds. All right, and if you're out there and you read the New Yorker, you don't really read the New Yorker. Everybody who orders the New Yorker, there's no way anybody can read that. Like there's, the human heart can only contain so many poems and so many idiosyncratic stories. You're just piling that up on your coffee shop so we all think you're smart and we know it. We know it. But anyway, I was listening to the New Yorker radio hour and it was fascinating. They were telling the story of a woman who grew up in an evangelical church. And again, every time I hear these stories, I'm, I go in with so many assumptions. And it's really good. I get corrected in my assumptions because I'm like, yeah, right. Was it really evangelical? And so she started the podcast by saying, I am a CH. I am a CH. I was like, okay, yep. She knows. And they started talking about these things. And so she described her own story about totally being bought in to that kind of being eroded and then to a point where she lost her faith. I start hearing this and I go, okay, I bet I know what's going on. You probably terribly experienced like a church abuse kind of scandal and that's terrible and we hate that. Oh, it's, it's awful, but you still believe in God, but you're just giving up on the church. I bet that's what's happening. Again, I get correction here. She says this, I like church. I just gave up on God. Okay, I should not assume things. Here we go. Here's what she said though. She said, I broke up with God. I just said, we're, we're done, we're out. And then she said this fascinating thing, which is haunting. She said, when I broke up with God, I didn't know how to think. Because for my whole life, all my thoughts had been filtered through Jesus and God. And now he's gone, and I don't know how to think. As chilling and as haunting as it is, and as many different areas we can take with that conversation... I think what this woman is, is getting at, which I think is so instructive and so fascinating, is I think because God has glued himself to us, you pray a lot more than you think you do. It, it, it's kind of like, like, like the people who, uh, it's like, like, like San Diego, California, like when the weather is nice every day, like what's nice weather? You just forget about it. And that's what it's like being united to God, where it's just like we, he's with us. We know him. He's here. And then when it, when it feels like he's gone, it's like, whoa. But because God has glued himself to us, I think that is an invitation for us to be way more gentle when we think about how we approach prayer. I bet, I would bet you pray way more than you think you do. I bet you're, oh, I'm not, you know, I could be praying more, you know. There's been many times where I have a few minutes and I'm like, should I pray or should I, you know, play this video game? And I play the video game and oh. But I would be willing to bet that you pray way more, that your soul is more open to God than you know. And the invitation from Deuteronomy, what a listening posture does is to say, God, I just want to be more aware of how I'm praying, and I don't even, how our thoughts are going together. You're glued to me. We're united. How, how you're shaping me, I want to be more aware of that than I am. We don't have a Christian failure narrative around here of like, hey, this text says do this. You didn't do that. You failed. Bummer. Jesus came in and saved the day. Now, that's all true. That's all true, and we give our life for that. But so many people, that's the only speed we operate at all right, I messed up. Where's God going to give me correction and then be nice to me? Look, if you're here and you trust Jesus, the good news that, that Deuteronomy has for you is this. God will not forget his covenant. 
The Hebrew word forget is not like the English word forget. The English word forget is what I do when I leave the house in a hurry and I forget to shut off the stove or I go to bed and I forget to shut the garage. All, things, all those things have happened. I just forget. I'm working on it. It's, it'll get there. That's not what it means when God forgets. Forgetting in Hebrew means it's not a priority. Remembering is to prioritize it, to put it in front of our brains. God is saying he prioritizes our relationship. He's not going to forget. He's going to keep on making that a priority. When we hear him saying that, I think that energizes our prayer lives. Rather than how can we white knuckle this, how can we try harder, how can we do this? It's like, God, here's these promises. Here's who you said that you are. And I hear you saying that. What does it mean to hear? I mean, it means I'm really attuning. Okay, you say, you say that you're not going to give up on us. You say that you're easy to find. I'm, help me, help me. I'm listening. Help me attune to that. And you know what you're doing? You're praying. 2023, we really want to commit to praying. This church, we really believe, has experienced so many blessings that we wouldn't have experienced if men and women weren't praying. I firmly believe, and whether you're like the craziest Calvinist ever or the most hardcore Arminian ever, whatever your theology is on that, I believe Scripture is very clear that things happen when we pray. And so what we are committing to is not, let me try harder to pray this year. What we are committing to is a posture that just says, I'm going to listen to God. I'm here listening. And we really think that if that's the posture we commit to, not effort, not trying harder, but just like listening, we really think things that wouldn't happen are going to happen. I firmly believe prayer changes things. I've said this, I've told this story, I think, in a prayer meeting here. My friend Abner, it's an Old Testament scholar, uh, one of the, he was talking to me once about a flight he was on. And he uh, was trying to get home from St. Louis, back to where he was living. And he was watching, like, on his phone, like a storm coming in to an airport he had a connecting flight toward. And he just prayed, like, oh, God, move that storm. He was headed right toward the airport. Half hour later, they come on the, the street and say, hey, the storm has moved. Now this flight is canceled. But Abner, you know, they didn't say this, but Abner, your flight's good to go. And he immediately was like, oh, my goodness, what have I done? I just messed up like 200 people's days. Ah, he felt terrible. <laughs> well, that's just how much confidence he had that prayer moves God. Why does it move God? Because of who he is, he's easy to find, he's gentle, he won't give up, and he's glued himself to us. When Damar Hamlin woke up uh, from uh, the, in the hospital at the University of Cincinnati, one of the, the, the first question that came out of his mouth, he had to write it down, he said, who won the game? It's amazing, right? The doctors, though, replied, you did. You won the game of life. We live in a very secular society. No secret. I don't think that's, a, that's like the least controversial thing I could say. 
And when tragedy has struck, nobody's like, oh, what's going on? Rather, we've seen our neighbors see the sanctity of life. Like, man, we value life. We love life. This, I mean, the stories about DeMar Hamlet, if you haven't, go and read just like how he gave back to his community. He had a toy drive that I think he was trying to raise $2,500. I think the last time I checked, it was at like $8 million. I mean, this guy was like a stand-up guy. And I think collectively, everybody saw and just went, life is a gift and we don't want it to end. Ah! And what we can say is, hey, neighbor, that is such a good desire. Life is good. And you're, you're actually seeking in the right place. You're on a path toward life, calling out to God. And here's who he says he is. Do you want him? I really believe that God will let everybody into heaven who can possibly stand the place. The invitation for us as a, as a community is, are we going to commit to trusting are we going to commit to trusting that God is gentle with our weakness, that he's easy to find, that he's for us, that he won't give up on us, and that he really has attached himself to us? And then are we going to go into the places he's invited us into, our workplaces, our offices, our family, and just be people of prayer? That's who we are. We can't not pray because we're glued to the God. He's with us. And the invitation is to grow more aware of that through listening. Father, Father, we're grateful for the promises your word makes. God, you're easy to find. You're not playing games with us. God, you're gentle with us. God, I pray that we would experience that gentleness this morning. It's so easy for us to to hear these things and to blow by them. But God, I pray throughout the week that you'd bring to mind your gentleness, that we would all experience that. Your faithfulness, you won't give up on us. And God, I pray that we would be aware of the glue that's all over us because of your presence. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.